We're back with another Geek Out episode. Richard Campbell, a developer and podcaster who dives deep into science and tech topics, is back for our third Geek Out episode. This time around, we're diving deep into renewable energy, energy storage, and just what do we do to keep the lights on without frying our beloved Earth? I think you're really going to enjoy this deep dive into the science of renewable energy and energy storage. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 329, recorded August 4th, 2021. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy, and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm, and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by us over at Talk Python Training, and the transcripts are brought to you by Assembly AI. Richard, welcome back to Talk Python to Me. Hey, great to be back, man. It's been, uh, been a year. Quite a year, as I recall. <laughs> it, uh, we're living in like dog years or something like that, right? Every year uh, is like yeah. seven years. I don't know if we spoke about it, but I definitely joke that, you know, historians, when they come back and study this time frame, they won't be able to say, you know, what decade or what era they study. It'll be like, well, what part of 2020 did you study? What part of 2021 yeah. did you study? Did you study the summer or was it the spring? Because that's a different specialty. Oh, yeah. No, and, and it is how much it's changed and that we still living with a certain level of uncertainty you know the, the at the time that we're recording this the delta variants having an impact and i think everyone's sort of leaning back again going uh-oh how bad is this going to get yeah so yeah i don't know a month from now things could be very different either way yeah it, it could go either way that's that's absolutely mm -hmm. right yeah so i'm cautiously optimistic trying to you know live life be safe but not be huddled in a corner for too yeah. badly you know free and for your own sanity i mean one nice thing about being up on the coast is like the view is impeccable the we're right on the ocean you'll probably even hear it a bit in the recording like it keeps you sane to be able to be out here and breathe the air and and uh and just try and connect with folks even if it's it has to be remote that's all yeah yeah well for the audio podcast listeners Tell us how you are speaking to us. Via Starlink through, I got on the beta for Starlink right at the very beginning. And because we're in this relatively remote location, we were opted in very early on. I, there is cable modem service up here, but it's broken at the moment. And so there's repairs trying to be done this morning, which is one of the reasons we delayed recording, but they have not been successful so far. So we're counting on Elon's magic as one of, as now the largest satellite operator in the world. And soon he'll be more satellites than everybody else combined at the rate he's going. And it's been pretty good, but you know, there are dropouts. It's never flawless. And this, what we're asking it to do, this real time thing is of course the hardest thing. Right, right. We're going real time to space, which is pretty amazing, but it's, it's kind of cool. I haven't had a chance to speak with anyone who's had real experience with Starlink. It's neat to have yeah, it. To, you're, you part know, of, you're part of the experiment now, friend. <laughs> that's know, right. Here we are. <laughs> exactly. And, we were planning on using high-speed wired internet, but it broke. Yep. And so it's a really cool fallback to have. And I think it's actually going to be really empowering for people in places where that's not an option. Yeah. And it, certainly I've talked to a bunch of friends who are all very interested in it. And because I'm right on the ocean, I have a very clear view of the sky. And that's the real problem with Starlink is you need an absolutely clear view of the sky. And often when you're in remote locations, you're surrounded by trees. And trees and Starlink are not friends. No. <laughs> And, and satellites definitely don't mix. 
Yeah, right. it just doesn't work. Well, I'm really glad that we're able to make this happen. And I say that with fingers crossed for another mm-hmm. 45 minutes or whatever it's going to be. What a time we got. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, let's hope the satellites are well aligned for this next period and we'll have a good call. Yeah, absolutely. So this episode is going to be like some of the previous ones that you've been on before and mm-hmm. that it's going to be one of these geek out episodes. And the geek out episodes I learned about, which mostly... I guess, premiered on .NET Rocks. Is that right? Right. Yeah, it's totally my friend Carl's idea. I did not want to do these. I thought it was a bad idea, and I was wrong. So the first Geek Out was back in 2011, and it was mo- it was about the shuttle ending yeah. and uh, just my, my thoughts on what went right and what went wrong with the space shuttle. And it continued from there. It became, it became a pleasure for me. I'm a researcher by nature. And, uh, and I've always been organizing my thoughts around different technologies just because I like to read and, and research. And the shows basically drove me to finish. Now make an hour-long conversation about that technology. Isn't that interesting and, about uh, being able to present something? Yeah. That you have to, you have to you close those loops that you're like, oh, that's interesting, but I, I'm not going to dig into that corner or that corner of this thing. And then when you've got to stand oh, up and present it. I feel like well, that, that's a great way to learn stuff in general as people in technology, not just for the geek out thing. You definitely end up better at it. The One of the series that I'm very proud of that absolutely the process of making this show has transformed it was the Fusion series. Because I originally thought I'd do a show on Fusion. But as I started really organizing all the materials, I realized there was there was three different shows there. There was a show about national fusion, like the ITER and JET and the National Ignition uh, Laboratories all of these big government projects. And then there was the tech billionaire pet fusion projects, because you're not a cool tech billionaire if you don't have one. And it was was a moment where I realized, geez, every one of them has one, and they're all wacky. (laughs) And then I ran across a set of papers out of Mitsubishi Labs about uh, low energy fusion reactions. And that actually walked us into a real conversation about cold fusion, which surprised me. It's like pseudoscience for a long time. But the, the Mitsubishi Labs experiments in the, in the late 2000 aughts were very real and repeatable. Mitsubishi was smart enough that when they realized they had something consistent, they handed it over to Toyota, their arch rival, and said, here, you reproduce this. Because if anybody was going to punch holes in it, it was their arch rival. And they repeated the experiment successfully. And if you listen to that show, I'll give away the ending. Yes, you can do lower energy uh, nuclear reactions. They are a kind of fusion. It's a part of science that's not well understood, and it takes more energy to do it than it produces. Just the sort of thing you don't want from a power plant. We can make it happen, but it doesn't produce net energy. Yeah, it's the fun part of that show is is I'm walking Carl through the process, and Carl's always a great everyman for these kinds of things. And I, I actually talked about muon catalyzed fusion, and which is a different kind of low energy fusion and uh, very repeatable, workable, and so forth. It's just that it takes more energy to make muons than the fusion reaction produces, which it turns out is every kind of fusion except stellar fusion, that's how it's always worked. It takes more energy to fuse than it does, than it it emits. Yeah, well, if you got that much gravity, it definitely is an unfair advantage. So, yeah, so (laughs) this is going to be another one of these Geek Out episodes, and we're mostly going to just focus on the energy side, so it's sort of relevant that you're talking about fusion here. The other thing I guess that's worth, you know, just giving a quick shout out to is you're organizing the Dev Intersection Conference, right? Yeah, we did. So we did a show back in June as a full hybrid show. So some attendees in person, some uh, attendees remote and some speakers in person, some speakers remote. So we know how to do that. 
we're hoping to do a more in-person show in Vegas, but we're prepared to do hybrid again if necessary because we've pulled it off. But uh, this is a developer show. I mean, we're, we have a close relationship with Microsoft, so there's lots of .NET content, but also web content across the board, plenty of Azure, artificial intelligence technologies, and it's a very big, broad show and a, a ton of fun, and the MGM Grand is a great location for it. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I feel like... You know, last time we spoke, this was the pre-Delta, pre-large-scale vaccine. And like, oh, look, mm-hmm. we're sort of crossing over the hump. And this is going to be like, you'll be able to sort of put this back on, no problem. And yeah. then Delta and all that kind and of again, stuff. And again, ask me in a month and maybe it'll be fine. <laughs> but at the moment, we're all sort of holding our breath. And it's like, we know what to do if we have to. Yeah. Uh, I hope we don't have to. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so let's dive into our our main topic since okay. uh, we are on a bit of a time crunch since we're going to space. So mm-hmm. <laughs> on this one, I wanted to talk to you about energy. And I think there's a lot of things happening around energy that's both optimistic and amazing, as well as there's setbacks and other things. So, you know, let's talk about sort of the story of energy, specifically mostly renewable energy these days. Like, how are we doing? We're doing pretty well. I mean, obviously the pandemic changed things. Power consumption overall, especially electricity, did decline, especially in the West during the pandemic. Closing of malls and commercial spaces and so forth, because those spaces tend to be very efficient in the sense that you do shut them down, they reduced a lot of power consumption. Now, everybody went home and consumed more power at home. But if you think about the normal work cycle where people are at home, then they go to work and then they come back again, the home is not typically not as diligently shut down as office spaces. So homes have a sort of always on certain amount of power consumption going on. And you could do better than that, be a little more efficient. Yeah, I bet a bunch of people just leave their AC set to whatever. Exactly. And Aaron, you, you know the real sin? I've come, as I've been studying my house, heated floors. Those electrically heated floors consume a lot more power than you realize. Interesting. And if you learn how long it takes to get them to temperature and so forth so that you can shut them down when you're not home during the day and heat them up when you need them, it, that's a lot of power. That's a kilowatt per floor per day easy. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, that is a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and air conditioners too. And I suspect that people, a lot of people don't shut them down. So I saw an article recently that talked about, oh we're actually being set back by people working from home because we all now have our computers on and our lights on and our AC or our heater or, you know, depending on the time of the year at right. everybody's house instead of one giant office. But I, what I don't believe that took into account was the person who lives 45 minutes away from the office and commutes with a an old suburban SUV that is burning extra gas, right? Like it's, I think it just looked at the energy of the office and the energy of the homes and said, oh, there's more at the homes, right? But it eliminated the commute. Well, but I don't think that's true either. In, in some respects, you have the same computer, if not a less efficient computer at the office. And so yeah. that those things were turned off. I think the move to the cloud actually ends up being energy efficient because per, business owned servers tend to be less utilized than cloud servers. So- you, you're actually gaining efficiency in terms of power consumption by shifting those workloads into the cloud. Those machines run at a much higher constant utilization rate. So there's fewer CPUs serving far more workloads that way. Right, right. How many VPCs servers run on top of you know one piece of hardware? A lot. Exactly. I mean, a lot. And of course, they're paid by the, for that. They, their margin is in that optimization. 
where typically your owned servers just don't have that same level of utilization. But I think that the biggest thing that, that created in the West, the huge power drops was that folks shut down those buildings. They turned as much off as they could, far more reliably than anything else. The drop in, in oil, recognizing that, that oil consumption in the form of gasoline and kerosene, 50% of all oil is going into road transport and air. And so that drop was tremendous during the peak of the pandemic. In April of 2020, the oil industry calls that Black April because it was, if in the West, it was like 30% reduction. You know, on a typical day in 2019, the world consumed about 80 million barrels of oil. And in April of 2020, it was like 45 million. Yeah, that's amazing. And this the thing is like that oil moves all the time. And so if you recall, there was a crisis where oil actually went to negative pricing because nobody had anywhere to store it. I remember that. And there was all these people yeah. investing in sort of indirectly in oil. And what I think there were some of them, they didn't realize that they were on the hook to store that oil. Exactly. And then they got And so there were oil hammered. tankers arriving at refineries with nowhere to offload because the tanks were all full. And now the ship was effectively a storage machine. Like that's how bad it got for a month. And it hasn't fully recovered. Like oil consumption is still down. They don't expect road transport consumption. And I'm referencing the IEA report. This is the International Energy Association. It's very challenging to get good energy data, quality energy data. This is a group that are operated out of Paris, they're, but they're worldwide and they're very agnostic. They're not owned by any energy companies. You know, typically when you go looking for data like this, you will find energy companies telling you about how their energy is great. This is sort of the most reasonable report you can get in terms of, right, of levelizing right. all You've of those numbers. You've heard the clean so, natural gas. <laughs> yeah, story, well, right? cleaner than coal. It's a relative right? statement, I mean, isn't it? Give them that. It's about half the emission level of coal, yep. but it's still with significant emissions. And it's cheap, right? And that's why natural gas has done so well. So the IEA, I mean, they break down a lot of these pandemic details. And one of the points they made is like, road transport consumption will probably reach 2019 levels by the end of 2021. But air transport won't. And air transport is going to take longer to come back. Uh, people aren't flying. Yep. And that's uh, it's had a huge impact. Yes, we move a lot of stuff by cargo, but we move far more people by air. And so the number of airplanes that are still parked and the decrease in consumption all around is it's not small. And so in that sense, our emissions have dropped a, a non-trivial amount in the process. And the good news is when that power consumption drop happened, the power plants that got turned off were the dirtiest ones. So coal consumption went down dramatically in 2020 because power consumption went down. That's really good. I mean, it makes sense that that was the plants that they turned off, except in China. <laughs> China actually added coal consumption because China increased their power consumption throughout the pandemic. They also, I mean, you give fair credit to China. While there may have been 50% of the increase in coal consumption in 2020, there were also 50% of the increase in renewables over 2020. So, yeah. I mean, China is growing very rapidly. They're building out a lot of infrastructure and they did not stop through the pandemic. They did a better job of containing the pandemic as well. I don't know if that's true. What they certainly did was did a good job of containing any data about their pandemic. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair. They also have the freedom. That's not the right word. They have the flexibility to 
impose rules differently than yes. suggestions that we have like in North America and Europe. Well, and, and one of the big cases is like the whole world has benefited from the fact that the Chinese government chose to simply build gigantic solar power plants to manufacture solar at a massive scale and drove the price down of solar. Yeah. It, it probably wasn't the most economically efficient way to go about it, but it's the advantage of having, you know, the sort of strict single party rule system that says thou shalt build big solar factories and they did yeah and yeah again sent the price of solar to the floor to the to the point where we now in the west use solar differently you know once upon a time solar panels were so precious you put them on articulated arms to aim them perfectly at the sun throughout the day to maximize utilization these days you don't do that because those arms are fragile they break and they're expensive yeah and for a lot and so when Germany did this huge push towards solar as they started to try and wind down their nuclear power. They were putting all of these solar panels in, all aimed south because they're in the north, you know, fairly far north, and they get the most light if they're physically aimed south. Until they were generating so much power at the middle of the day when they didn't need it that it was actually a problem for their grid. And they don't do that anymore. They now point their panels east and west, which seems foolish because it means you get less utilization per panel. But what you're actually doing is smoothing out your power generation. You don't need as much power in noon. What you need is more power in the morning and more power in the evening. And moving those panels, using each panel less efficiently actually makes a more efficient grid. How interesting. I, so I, I think the area I really want to focus on with our conversation is that storage side because I think that's the magic of unlocking things. For, sure. Before we do, have you seen Project Sunroof? I have. From, it doesn't work in Canada, unfortunately. That is unfortunate. But, uh, the sun is totally yes, different but, there? Or no, just kidding. I don't but, know. Well, you know, it has a U in the in his name. So, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this thing uh, lets you go to your address or anyone's address and click on it and mm -hmm. say it gives you a heat map of the roof of your house for the amount of energy it's going to receive. And unfortunately here, you know, I'm also in the Pacific Northwest. And one of the things that I think is glorious about here is, you know, right in my yard, I have 150 year old trees that are Beautiful. super high, right? Which are amazing mm -hmm. unless you want solar radiation yeah, on your you house. Unless you want sunlight to hit places. Yes, <laughs> exactly. There's like a little sliver or Starlink for that matter. Yeah. Both, both are out <laughs> for me. Like, like I yeah. actually had some solar people come out and estimate, does it make any sense to, I mean, like put the money aside does it even make sense just from a climate perspective? And they're like, you know what? It's going to take five years to pay off the carbon of manufacturing the, just the panels. And like, oh, right. right. Yeah. It's like too inefficient to justify it, unfortunately. But yeah, your yields are just too low. And it's like, if you really wanted to reduce your carbon footprint, spending that money on the best appliance, the most efficient appliances you could have. Right. Or redoing your insulation or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Or even using things like Tesla Powerwall to run on battery during peak power consumption times. Those things represent the problem with, with most grid power is that it pretty much generates the same amount of power all the time. Grid is not that flexible. It takes a while to spin up those big power plants. And so they produce for peak. And if so, if most people, you know, the concept of power wall was, hey, if I can take you off the grid during peak, if I can store power at the cheap times, and then use that power at the peak times, we can turn off a peak power plant. Talk Python to me is partially supported by our training courses. Do you want to learn Python, but you can't bear to subscribe to yet another service? At Talk Python Training, we hate subscriptions too. That's why our course bundle gives you full access to the entire library of courses for one fair price. That's right. 
With the course bundle, you save 70% off the full price of our courses, and you own them all forever. That includes courses published at the time of the purchase, as well as courses released within about a year of the bundle. So stop subscribing and start learning at talkpython.fm slash everything. It seems completely reasonable. You know, there's been a lot of success, mm-hmm. I think, with the grid scale utility level power pack that Tesla does. Yeah, I mean, it's not a lot of success. There's been a few. I mean, Australia being the famous. Yeah, that's ones. the one I was thinking um, of for sure. Yeah, they just had a big fire at one of them in terms of, you know, lithium ion, ion burns prolifically. Yeah, I was going to call that out. Where was that one? That was, yeah. That one was definitely, uh, I guess I can't pull it up. The biggest advantage of battery over all storage methods, period, is recovery. That it's it comes about 90% efficient. So put 100 kilowatts in, you'll get 90 kilowatts out in exchange for expensive, right? That's, that's the issue is that they're expensive installations. They do have fire risks. The availability of lithium is constrained, although we're starting to see some other battery technologies come down the pipe. The, the famous, the big news stories at the moment are around iron-based batteries. So liquid iron, uh, it's not, the iron's not liquid, but it's a liquid electrolyte iron battery, essentially rust batteries. So you when you oxidize the iron, you can move, you can store electricity and then you deoxidize to release the electricity. Oh, interesting. It's almost like electrolysis, but applied to iron. Yeah. And it's the same. And fundamentally, that's what all batteries are, right? It's doing a chemical reaction that creates new compounds. You're not going to find iron batteries in your phone anytime soon. They are big, they are heavy, but they are very grid scale. The most advanced batteries that I've seen that seem to have the best backing right now are a company called Form Energy. Okay. So they've raised about $125 million, which seems like a lot, and it is in this space, but grid scale power is hundreds of millions of dollars. So they haven't got a deal yet. They had some breakthroughs in their battery. Their typical battery unit is about the size of a dishwasher. So again, that's it wouldn't be good for a car, wouldn't be good for, for a phone. It's also because it has a liquid in it, its orientation really matters. So these are meant to be held in place, mounted on the ground. They are run pretty hot, not a sort of thing you want to be around, but they're cheap. Like typically with lithium ion batteries today, we're coming in around a hundred, it may be as low as $80 a kilowatt. And believe me, like when a hundred dollars a kilowatt was reached for vehicle class batteries, that was considered the point where now we are price competitive with internal combustion cars. Right. And that exactly. breakthrough was like in the past couple of years. These iron batteries are coming in at like twenty dollars a kilowatt. Wow. So are they more stable than the lithium ones as well? Yeah, they're le- far less fire risk and slow, steady discharging. So one of the claims to fame for the form energy battery is full discharge took a hundred hours. So the idea that, again, if you think about what is a grid want, it's that ability to have stable power all of the time. And so being able to count on a long duration battery makes a lot of sense. So this is not the kind of battery you'd want in your home. Like we have this home-based, hey, we're going to spend less on the grid. We're going to put some solar panels in. We're going to put some power walls in and we'll use the grid as backup and take less pressure off of that. But grid scale power storage you're starting to see different kinds of storage system. And this is the first battery technology I've seen that's really based on grid style storage and has that really high efficiency rating, but it's not the only way to store power. Yeah, yeah, before we move off to the, just the battery side, I do wanna ask you, if you use your crystal ball and look into the future, do you see a world where we've got renewable energy locally generated, like on roofs in California and maybe a power wall 
on a house. Like I could see California mandating every house comes with some sort of local battery. Yeah, they have, and they have mandated solar. Yes, exactly. You now have to apply for a permit to not put solar on your house. Which, perfect. It's cool. You know, I mean, California has often done these kinds of things. The battery technology is a little trickier. They are expensive. They are relatively fragile. But yeah, it's possible. But it's easier solved with grid. In yeah, some I was going to say, do you see that future? Or do you see a future where we've got, you know, massive grid scale type of generation and storage? Yeah. I think it's going to be lots of both because there's good reasons for both. Now, and one of the challenges here when you start thinking about this microgrid behavior of having homes able to be on the grid is the grid needs to get much smarter. We need internet technology applied to electrical generation and utilization because it's a peer-to-peer kind of problem. And I mean, we're in computing, so we get that. But if you go talk to people who've worked in power grids all their life, peer is bizarre to them. Right? They're very much a, a fewest number of power plants necessary to supply the load and a single set of wires to feed it out. Redundancy is an expensive, often unnecessary thing. And so, but that is clearly changing as we're, we are creating more automation. So I think people will have a choice on how they want to consume in that respect. But we're starting to perfect grid power storage and mostly because our renewables don't deliver a levelized load. They deliver when they deliver. And we need to levelize with other strategies. And yeah. that's where storage comes into yeah. play. All right. Two other things really quick. Well, maybe one altogether. So we had a lot of resistance in the U.S. to putting up windmills, wind farms off the East Coast because the people with their yachts, when they went a little farther out, they would see the windmills and the, yeah. they really hated it. And then out in the desert in Nevada, though, what would have been a tremendously large solar grid scale solar is canceled because the electric, the article headline is the U S largest solar farm is canceled because Nevada locals don't want to look at it while they're out on their all train vehicles, which I, I love riding all train vehicles. I'm not against that, but you know, <laughs> it seems like some trade-offs that are, are necessary. Yeah. I mean, people, there is always an NIMBY effect. What's interesting about a place like Nevada and New Mexico is that they could be doing, they're doing heliosolar. So rather than using photovoltaic, they're using reflectors to heat molten salt. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting about that at that scale is the salt gets so hot that it still generates power through the night. You know, yeah. we, I mean, there's a bunch of ways to use molten salt. It's used in nuclear reactors. It's used in power storage systems. It's used in helio systems. The thing that's powerful about salts, whatever they may be, sodium-based salts, fluorine-based salts, doesn't really matter, is that their operating liquid temperature, the temperature that they turn from a solid into a liquid, is around 400 degrees Celsius. It varies from material to material. But their boiling point when they'll turn into a gas is past 1500 degrees. Yeah. So you have this huge operating range of liquid, right? As opposed to water, which only has a hundred degree range. And I'm using Celsius because I'm a civilized human for my, for the liquid range. And that's not a lot of range. So the, the advantage being I can do flash steam turbines against 500 degree Celsius salts, just as easily as I can do against 800 degree salts and so forth. And so they carry heat long enough that you can bridge nighttime with it. Right, so that's even a form that's, of storage in a sense. Flooding a coast, yeah. There is a mechanism, like if we have more solar than we know what to do with, why don't we switch it to heaters to heat this salt up? Because after it gets past a certain temperature threshold, it'll generate a lot of electricity. Now it's not, because of that floor, that minimum temperature, molten salt storage is not as efficient as battery storage. Battery storage comes in in the 90%, molten salt's coming in 70%. On the other hand, they're very persistent. They are less, you know, they've got a lot fewer risks. 
they're a well-known technology. So if you have the materials, it's a good solution. But there are more, right? Like for years, we've been using pumped uh, hydro storage, where you use that excess electricity to pump water up a hill. And then when you need it, you let the water come back down. Right. So, yeah. So let's talk about some of the ones that are not straight up battery, right? So like you said, that one's been pretty popular. You need the- Been around a long time. Yeah. I was really blown away when I first heard about that. So the idea is you might have, you might be at the the face of a mountain and there might be a mountain yeah. lake up right there. So you could have a lake at the bottom and a lake at the top. And as you generate the energy, all the extra just pumps the water to the top. And then when you let it out, you run it through some kind of hydroelectric thing on the way to- You put it through a turbine on the way back down, you get the power. And that's got about an 80% return. So more efficient than molten salt, not as efficient as battery. It's terrain specific. You need to have a handy mountain. Now there's another gravity solution that doesn't need a mountain. It's called crane-based storage, where they use a very tall crane and they use the electric power to lift concrete blocks and stack them higher and higher and higher. And then when you want to discharge the power, you pick the block up and let it come down and spin a turbine, uh, spin a generator to generate electricity from it. That's kind of nouveau. The current yeah. efficient, nobody's built one to scale yet, but the experimental ones have, again, coming in in the 80% range. So there's challenges with the water one, right? You're, you're moving yeah. water up high. And what if the dam or the, the pipes were to break and to flood the city that it was near? Yeah. Or there's a drought, all sorts of things. It's also, there's only so much water you can pump up. Like what happens when you run out of water? What yeah. happens when you run out of room? Like now it's going to over, it, typically they're dammed water storage. Like the dam can only hold so much too. So it has limits where the crane based ones, as long as the crane can reach the blocks and doesn't get past its leverage moments, you can put a lot of blocks in place. You can build the crane yeah. larger. You can put its arm out longer. So that's interesting. Although it's, they're going to be more expensive and have more maintenance than your typical hydro pump solution. Yeah, you can build more cranes. You could dig a hole in the ground and have this giant mm -hmm. block of concrete or whatever go up and down, you know, yep. hundreds of meters in, in under underground, right? Yeah, well, lots of blocks, right? So when you have excess power, you're lifting blocks and stacking them high. And then, and more and more and more of them. And then when you need the power, you're, you're letting them come back down one after the other. You have to levelize the power. Like there's some tricks to it. It's not a simple solution, but it works anywhere that you've got some flat land. Yeah. Which right? and, with a bulldozer is almost anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> if you, with some enthusiasm and some dynamite, you can make anything flat. <laughs> that's right. So that seems like a really good solution. And so this is the thing that I really am excited to talk to you about because mm -hmm. I get so frustrated when I hear things like, well, it would be great if this pipe dream you had could come true and you could run stuff on solar and wind, but it's never going to work because I want to watch TV at night and not be cold at night. So it right. doesn't work. It's never, it's unsafe. And there's all this creative stuff going on, like pumped hydro, like molten salt, like we could just dig a hole in the ground and use some really complicated like transmission to, yeah, you know, you take the mixture of the the iron based batteries, the twenty kilowatt, uh, twenty dollars per kilowatt hour battery with wind and solar, which are now so cheap and have grown a lot through the pandemic too. They're now the second largest source of power, and you know they've had the biggest growth. And admittedly, the largest renewable is still hydroelectric, but solar and, and wind are growing rapidly and had been very, very successful. Yeah. The, the offshore wind power movement is an interesting one where they're getting not just in the water. Right now, they, when they go in the water with wind power, they're doing near shore, not too deep, 100 feet, 200 feet, stuff they can anchor to the bottom on. But they've now hit a point where they're ready to start using more of the oil rig technologies to do floating 
turbines. So now you can go a couple of hundred miles offshore or more off the continental shelf right. and run the turbines out there. Yeah, two of the challenges that I saw when I was thinking about that was one, you've got to dig down into the ground and you're disturbing the ecosystem of you know oysters and, and whatever, right, that like might be there if you're going to mount these things to the ground. The other mm -hmm. is with these giant windmills. And you know, when I was in Germany, we were around these huge windmills all over and just the sense of being near them is really oh, yeah. crazy, right? They're ominous. And believe me, the offshore ones, I mean, twice the wingspan of a 747, like these 10 megawatt turbines, they're so big, you can't even get your head around how big they are. Yeah. They're just titan it titans. They're just incredibly large. But to have them on a floating platform away from everyone, where the noise isn't, where the sea life is not as plentiful, where the seabirds are not as plentiful. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is the other one is people would say, look, these are harmful to all the birds because there are so many bird strikes. But, you know, 10 miles offshore, there's not that much bird traffic. Well, and now we're talking 200 miles offshore. Okay, even further. You're well, uh, you're off the end of the continental shelf. So you're way out there. The bird traffic is substantially lower. And that's a far less disruptive technology all around. It increases costs, but the equipment's getting cheaper and the power generation is valuable and it's you know minimally disruptive they're smart enough to survive severe weather right? so you know that's continuing to grow dramatically yeah for a reason and and the taking the known technology for working offshore and turning it into automated platforms for for, for wind makes a lot of sense yeah absolutely so you know, when i circling back around when i hear people in the news or whatever say oh we can't have this renewable future because there is so much fluctuation and uncertainty. I feel like it's it's just a lack of creativity. These are old arguments. We've been solving them steadily. Exactly. Like we put people on the moon with like wristwatch level computing. Surely yeah. we can build some cranes or build some batteries and put... Yeah. Well, and we also did it in a very dangerous way. The way we sent people to the moon was extremely risky. That's why we stopped. <laughs> yeah. We want power that's safe and reliable, and, and that's fairly hard. And we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about nuclear, because nuclear can be safe. Yeah. It just hasn't been. We stopped spending money on it. We stopped spending money almost at the moment that we were moving beyond, like yeah. water-based nuclear where stuff would fail safer rather than fukushima type fail sure well here's the funny thing about fukushima there was actually six reactors in fukushima we only and only people only talk about one to four. Oh, four was offline and one through three melted down nobody talks about five and six. Five and six were exactly the same design but they had been modernized to have passive cool down and so when they were scrammed the same way one through four were and then they lost their generators just like one through four were they cooled down on their own without events. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that. That's cool. Yeah. It's, and, it, it, and they're undamaged, right? Now, the question is, why didn't one through four have passive cooldown? Because one through four were several years older, and the upgrade kits to make them passively cool down were expensive and took a, two years to install. And since the plants only had about five, six years of lifespan worth it, it was a financial decision not to install the passive cooldowns by TEPCO. Probably something they want to take back 
if they could. Yeah, but, you know, that's true of a lot of things. <laughs> you know, I, I'm pretty sure in Three Mile Island, the operators had asked for an indicator light for the pressure relief valve to show whether it was opened or closed. And they put the light in, but they wired it to the switch, not to the valve. So when you push the button, the light turned on. You push the button, the light turned off. Nobody knew what the valve was doing. And yeah. the valve sat open and allowed water, allowed water to escape from the vessel and to the point where the core was exposed and partially melted down. Yeah. You know, people make mistakes. But part of this is reactor size. The push to make reactors in the 300 megawatt class, because that's the size of the coal power plants. They knew how to operate that size. They knew how the turbines worked. So they made these bigger nuclear reactors. And that's problematic because they are hard to cool down. Now, we've learned to cool them down with more modern versions. But as soon as you shrink the, the down to a more natural size, to the 60 megawatt class, you just don't have that problem. Yeah. So, And those are the reactors you find in in aircraft aircraft carriers and in submarines, those kinds of places. And that's what you're seeing in small modular nuclear reactors are the 60 megawatt class. And these are the kind of reactors that you build in a factory rather than build on site. So they're not bespoke, they're standardized, they're built with machines, they're consistent, they're easy to test and validate. And so they're very reliable. You fuel them once, they run for 20 years on the fuel. So no refueling every year, you run them solid for 20 years. They are passively shut down because they're small enough. If you put the control rods in place, they will simply go cold. And so the folks I think are furthest along in the modular nuclear, they actually got their clearance contracts. They got certified by the, um, the Atomic Energy Association last year is New Scale. And they actually have a contract in Utah to build out the first modular plant. And their plan is to actually put 12 of these together on the site so that you get that same kind of 300, 400 megawatt power generation that is normal in grid, but they just have multiple small redundant reactors that they can swap them out as they need to be replaced. And when you, at the end of 20 years, you don't refuel it, you remove it. You lift it back out of the ground, you take it back to a factory where it is reprocessed and you put a new one in place. Yeah, so and this is a very different approach to nuclear. Yeah, gonna have to break a lot of uh, stereotypes and and fears yes right but it, you know the the atomic energy association has now signed on with that one so because it has passed and so the utah project by the way is is struggling now for new scale for the simple reason that costs have gone up and so some of the municipalities that signed on to buy power for them are now finding out the new power price is higher and they're like hey i can get a natural gas plant for less than that like why am i paying for this and that's part of the challenge here price is everything and solar's getting cheaper, wind's getting cheaper, natural gas has always been cheap. So these guys are always struggling with, as they develop these new technologies, they're trying to get those costs absorbed by their early sales and people don't want to pay for it. Yeah, it's a, a tough chicken and egg, right? So let's yeah. talk about some more storage. I do think the nuclear side is, is really interesting because it's been shunned so badly since the 70s, but it, it is carbon, it's zero carbon, right? It does not emit carbon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it consumes carbon to, if you're going to mine uranium or find uranium, ship uranium, like those are issues. It still has a consumable, although that the efficiency of that consumable, it's hard to get your head around how efficient it is in comparison. Yeah. How <laughs> little refined uranium it takes to run a power plant compared to the amount of coal or natural gas it takes to run a power plant. Yeah. And the problem is that the reactor design that's most mature that most people familiarize, the pressurized water designs, light water designs, were really meant to produce plutonium. Like the reason that the United States matured that technology was to make bombs. 
they make electricity. And while they're making electricity, they get plutonium out of their cores. And so it was designed to be disassembled every six months, have the cores reprocessed, get the plutonium out, make new cores and load them back in again. And then they stopped reprocessing cores uh, during the, the, um, the Ford administration when Carter was running against them with the anti-nuclear proliferation. Ford's attempt to get reelected, he said, I'll do what, what Jimmy wants us to do and stop reprocessing cores. And America has never reprocessed a fuel core since. They just store them yeah, at, and at the plant. And it was just a political game. Yeah. No, the French, who 80% of their power comes from pressurized water nuclear, have continued to modernize their plants. They always have reprocessed their cores. In fact, they now reprocess plutonium into their cores. It's called a MOX core. And so they're actually burning plutonium. And so they don't have the, radia the, the radiation storage problems. They're not because they're reprocessing their fuel. And, you know, by the way, when Germany decided to stop using their nuclear plants after Fukushima, to have enough power, they bought nuclear power from France. Like, that's how that worked. Yeah. Wow. Modernizing, not that, you know, nuclear plants have their problems and they need to be modernized and they need to be more efficient than they are. And there are better technologies that still should be matured. But these small modulars deal with most of that and with very relatively little new research needed to be done. And still it's a struggle. Yeah. Super interesting. So we only have about five minutes left, but yeah. I do want to talk about some more energy storage stuff. That's really interesting that people maybe don't mm -hmm. think about is what if I just got a giant, really balanced piece of steel and spun it really fast <laughs> or something like the that. flywheel solution. <laughs> exactly. Well, and modern flywheels are better than ever. These days, they use air bearings. They, some of them have even seen versions that have superconductive bearings so that they, and then they're in vacuum. So you re, the whole trick with a flywheel is minimizing friction. Like how fast can we get it spinning and, and stay in shape? And, and how long do we extract it? Now, they're not as efficient as batteries. They're close, 80, 85. They have their own me mechanicals, like the stuff that needs to be taken care of. But essentially, they're a part of a motor. Like you only have to put a field coil around that flywheel to extract power from it. So um, they're expensive to manufacture and they take specialized operators to run. Batteries in some respects, while expensive also are easier. So, but these are, flywheels been around a long time. When I, you know, when I was a kid and, and trying to get computer time in the university, that computer's backup system was a flywheel for power. Oh, wow. Like a 200 really? kilowatt set of flywheels. Yeah, we went down to the flywheel room one time and you, and you, and you talk about that threatening hum, Flywheels hum in a way to let you know if something goes wrong here, you're not even going to feel it. <laughs> when, <laughs> when flywheels disintegrate, that's a lot of mass moving in a hurry. Yeah. So they are um, they're interesting machines and they're an interesting approach to storing power. I think each of these power storage solutions, you know, has merit depending on where you are and what materials are expensive at the time. You know, flywheels count on heavy ferrous metals being inexpensive. And those sophisticated bearing systems to allow them to spin well and good field coil control so that they can spin them up and spin them down. Yeah. They're absolutely viable. I feel like they've gotten modernized quite a bit recently. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody, it's, it is the Rebco superconductive bearings that, that made a huge difference because you, you're floating on a bearing with no friction because it's not touching anything. It's in, eva in evacuated space. Right. That basically means you get it up to speed. And the way you, like you said, you extract energy is through magnetic yeah. stuff, not so making there's no it, physical yeah, contact. Gears, yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's a, it's a very modern way to think, but they make sense at a grid level. They should, they need to be large. They need to be professionally operated and professionally maintained. Yeah. The other one, I'm not sure if I have a picture of it here, actually. I don't think I do. Uh, the other one has to do with not storing water, but storing compressed air. 
Yeah, so where we see these are where they have airtight, large spaces, like old salt mines, for yep. example, where they've done mining the salt, but effectively the space is airtight, and so they can pump pressure into them. They have efficiency problems because you have sort of have a minimum pressure, so you've got to pump for a while before you get to a pressure that would spin a turbine. They come in in the 70% range, a little bit lower, but if you have the space, like the expensive part would be making the tank, Right. Right. Pumps are not that expensive and not that difficult. You know, they, but if you've got a huge volume of airtight space, it's worth utilizing that. Let me throw one other idea at you. Okay. You know, there's one hand, there's the idea of we're generating electricity and we need to store it for when we can't generate it. Then there's also the we're generating more electricity we need. Where do we put this? Yeah. And, but if you didn't need it for electricity, like why would you bother storing it to battery? Can you turn excess electricity into something valuable? And so one of the areas of research going on right now is water desalinization. We have a freshwater problem. Yeah. So why not, when you have excess electricity available, use that electricity to desalinate water. You're turning that, that excess power into something valuable, fresh water. There's a version of this. It's actually a kind of pump storage solution. So we pump seawater up to a high level. And then the drain system for that to lower it back down again actually has a reverse osmosis filter on it and just uses gravity to extract the fresh water. Yeah, how interesting. So, so taking exi existing designs of pumped power storage and instead of using a turbine with that water coming down, using it to extract fresh water from salt. Well, that's a lot of, a lot of options, a lot of different flexibilities for where you're located. Are you by a, mm -hmm. a mountain lake? Do you have an old mine? Yeah. Or do you do a standard pumped reverse osmosis is another solution. It just consumes more energy. Yeah. But if you have the excess energy, why not? And if you need the water. Yeah. Water desalinization is getting more popular all the time. You think about the drought that's going on in Southern, in, in Southern California. The Israelis are leading the world in water desalinization. It's a desert climate. It has water problems, but they don't have a water problem anymore. About 25% of their water is now desalinated water. Oh. They use the reverse osmosis systems for it. Yeah. The challenge is that most of these mechanisms take a while to get up to speed. So, you know, it can take a day to get a reverse osmosis system stabilized and pumping well. And if you're trying to use like the three hour window where you're making too much solar, you don't have, it, the system's not efficient for that, for making water. Yeah, it doesn't respond fast enough, right? So there's a push to modernize, to update these systems so that you have a 20 minute uptime. Like within 20 minutes, we can be making water with this. So that three-hour window in midday where we have more solar we know to do with, we can put it over to the reverse osmosis plant and make fresh water with it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Richard, thank you so much for being here and, and sharing all these ideas and doing the research for us. Yeah, you said it's a pleasure when you ask me because it's, these are all notes I'm keeping, but then I spend a few days sorting them out into a set of narratives. Like, uh, what are the important yeah. bits of all that? So it's a pleasure for me too and really fun to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah, it's always great to have you here, and who knows what we'll talk about next time, but it's, it's great. Well, yeah. coaxing, coaxing throw subject at me. You know I'm interested in everything. Sorry, I do know that for sure. All right, so <laughs> thank you for being here as always, and yeah, have a good day. And hey, we actually made this work from space. Yay, yeah. They held, it, it was a little cranky at the beginning, and it seemed to held out after that. <laughs> That's right. All right, bye, Richard. See ya. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest in this episode was Richard Camel. And it's been brought to you by us over at TalkPython Training, and the transcripts are brought to you by Assembly AI. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit talkpython.fm assemblyai. Want to level up your Python? 
We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. Thank you.